Do you know how to find the right oil for your car? Now you can find out quickly and easily online, thanks to Castrol's Rego to Oil tool. Simply type in your Rego, select your state, and within seconds you'll know the best Castrol products to unlock the edge of performance in your car. So what's your car best suited to? Just search Rego, the number two, and oil and find out. A Motorsport Podcast Network production. Welcome along, everyone. This is the V8 Sleuth Podcast, and this is a special edition. This is a look at the behind-the-scenes making of the brand-new book about Alan Moffat's amazing Coca-Cola Mustang, and a guy who has spent, ooh, the last, I don't know how many years, he's going to tell me very soon, I think it's five years all up putting this together. It is a work of art, and we wanted to take you behind the scenes of this new book with a guy who is no new face to the V8 Sleuth Podcast or voice, David Hassel, welcome back to the microphone. Good to be back. Thanks for having me. It is. And when we had you in, we spoke about your career at Motorsport News and all the stuff that you've done. And we alluded to and we mentioned this Alan Moffat Mustang book that you were working on at the time. Thing is now, I've got it in front of me. It's out. It's real. It's released. It's a thing. It's a work of art, just quietly, and I thought it was a great chance for us to get together and talk about the makings of this book, what's in it, how it's all come to be. So I guess we should start at the very big ticket element of this. Why have you done this book on the Alan Moffat Mustang? Well, that's a big question. Why? Um, Well, I'm passionate about it. That was the main thing. I've just loved the car since I was 14 years old when it arrived in Australia. And um, as I said in the book, it was like something arriving from outer space. It couldn't have been any more shocking if it if it was from outer space. It was amazing. So that was a that was a big thing. Um, the other thing is uh, I was going to do another project in about 2014, and um, Alan's Mustang was going to be the the main subject. Um, it was going to be the cover car. And so I interviewed Alan at, at large about it, um, and we chatted for hours, and so I had all this beaut- stuff on tape, uh, and when the project fell over and didn't happen, I thought, oh, what am I going to do with all this now? This is, you know, all this good chat. Um, so yeah, came up with the idea of, um, oh, maybe I should do a book. Yeah, how hard can that be? (laughs) (laughs) Famous last words. Famous last words. Thought, yeah, I just knocked that out quickly. Not a problem. Um, So, yeah, the the combination of the two, the opportunity was there. I had all this good chat from Alan, and you know, at that stage, he was he was starting to show the early signs of dementia, and I knew that I wouldn't be able to talk to him again. Um, And then the passion to do it really well. That was so. That was the two things coming together. I wanted it to be a real legacy book, something that Alan would be proud of, something his family will be proud of, something Mustang fans will be proud of, and you know, something that'll be sort of the the cherry on the top of my career. Mm. When it comes to doing a book on one single car, here at V Eight Sleuth, we've done them as you well know about a team's catalogue of cars or yep. a particular brands or a particular drivers. There's multiple cars. This is one big, huge, 400-plus page book on one single car. But Mm. I think the thing that we should cover off with this, it goes in-depth all the way through from its 
formative stages in America right through to its last race and where it is now and what it's doing now. But having worked with you on this in the early stages a little bit and having a look at a um, a draft copy of this, I remember reading the manuscript thinking, wow, there's a lot of pre-Mustang Moffat era stuff mm. here, a lot of his early years and early racing and early time in Australia. And I remember thinking – Where's the Mustang here? Where's the Mustang? <laughs> We're not into the Mustang. And once I'd read it, I really felt that you couldn't have done this book without all of the build-up mm. because it explains Alan, why he has been how he's been for his whole time in motorsport and his life, why he's wired, how he's wired. I love the stuff around yep. how he viewed um, race programs, Bathurst assaults as military operations. Mm. And, and he read a lot of- military books and, you know, those, what was it, Project um, Operation Phoenix and Project B-52, mm. and it was him against the him and his team against the world. This book really portrays a lot of that stuff that I feel like a lot of people who would be reading this or buying it are probably not expecting yeah. in the book. It, it's sort of a bit of a default biography or autobiography, and that's a reflection of the conversation I had with Alan as well. As I just wanted to talk about the Mustang, and he started talking and talking with such passion and and at length about his early career. Like he, it was obviously very important to him. And I wanted to use all that stuff, you know, when he was talking about racing the Cortinas and racing the Cougars and getting the Mustangs and forming the relationships with Ford and Goodyear that that defined his whole career. Um, so, yeah, it was kind of things coming together in that way. And uh, to be fair, the, his autobiography um, was written when he was already suffering from, from dementia. So it didn't have the depth that I really had and really wanted. And um, I guess the other thing is if, if there's any secret to my career, it's always been that I've always been an enthusiast. So I've always done what gets me excited and what I would like to read. And with this book, you know, I sort of, you know, you started out talking about the, the book on just one car. Well, me as a punter would love to read a book like that. So I just went ahead and do it, did it. And no matter what people said to me, you know, I sort of, I guess I got a lot of professional confidence. And I just thought, no, I'm going to do what I would really love to do. Um, and and all that early stuff, yeah, it's I think it's important. But people flick through the book, and you know they're up to page hundred, hundred and fifty or something, and we haven't even got to the Mustang yet. <laughs> um, but yeah, I think it's still worthwhile. It, it, it's absolutely um, worthwhile. What were the? I mean, we're talking about a book at how many pages? Is it four hundred? We ended up four thirty-two. Yeah, four thirty-two. Yeah. It's it's a whopper. It's yeah. three point three kilograms. Mm -hmm. It's packed with imagery um, of on the track, behind the scenes stuff I've never seen. Stuff I think a lot of people will have not known or or seen. So when you start, when you when you just when you switch to okay, I'm going to actually make a book out of this Alan Moffat discussion that I've had for another project. Mm -hmm. Do you have things already tucked away in terms of photos and information and other things, or did you have? How wide have you had to cast the net to bring all of this information, all of this material into the one place? I did start with a bit of stuff because, as I say, I'm, I'm an enthusiast. I've always loved this car. I've kind of 
gathered stuff over the last 50 years. Are you a hoarder? I guess I'm a I'm a magpie. <laughs> <laughs> I pick things as I see them and think, I could use that one day. No, I don't know what handy. for, but, you know, I could use it one day. Like back in the uh, 1970s, late 1970s, so after Barry Nelson had finished with Moffat, he was, he was the chief mechanic in the 60s and early 70s, um, I got to know him through, of all things, radio control cars. And be- we became mates and, you know, he was at my wedding and all that sort of stuff. He had a copy of the original um, homologation papers that he you know, copied out of Alan's filing cabinet. So I copied that. So I've been sitting on that for, you know, 45 years or something, for example. Um, you know, the relationships with Pauline and, uh, you know, the date back to that period of time have been pretty important as well. Um, but, yeah, you know, whenever I saw a nice photo, I'd, I'd just keep it and put it aside think, oh, yeah, I'll use that one day. Um, and then once you get into the book, of course, you start – picking from lots of other people. You go to them and say, what have you got? And um, and Moffat himself was gold because he kept everything. Like if you're talking about a hoarder, Alan kept everything. So every letter, every reply, every you know bit of paperwork, receipt, you name it, um, is it's all there. I didn't get access to all of it, but I, I got more than enough. So about probably, I don't know how many, there may be 650 photos roughly in the book, probably 200 of them are from the Moffat collection. So this is all, I mean, some of them are just regular action photos, but the real gold is the, um, you know, the car being built at Bud Moore's in, in um, Charlotte, uh, not Charlotte, Spartanburg. Um yeah, you know, they've never been seen before. Photos of the car landing Australia and photographed on the tarmac. We've seen the black and white photos of that, but this book's got colour photos. Yeah, it's amazing. With, with, with a model draped over the car. As in a model, never been a lady. A lady model. Yeah, not a model car, an actual yes. model. Yeah, yeah. So they've never been seen before. There's photos of the car when it came to Melbourne and went to the depot, the freight depot, and the guys came and... Got the car out, and um, you know, I, I didn't even know they existed. Um, to get them was fantastic, and they they uncover stories as well, and they uncover truths. Um, for example, you, things that you thought were right, but you didn't know, but now you definitely know. Yeah, and even even members of the crew thought certain things, like when the car arrived at Footscray. So this is the first time they've seen it, and they're taking it back to the Malvern workshop. Um, Barry Nelson was absolutely sure that he wasn't there. He was back at Malvern Road at the workshop and the car arrived. Well, suddenly I've got these photos and there's Barry. At the airport. At Well, no, at the freight oh, depot, the freight depot in, yeah. in Footscray. And uh, so I sent them to him and said, uh, what do you make of this? And he just did his head in. He thought, oh, no, I was sure I wasn't there, but there I am. And there they are trying to load it onto a trailer. And yet Peter Thorne had told me this story about it being towed back on a rope, flat-towed back to the workshop. So, again, I had to try and make sense of that, um, but eventually worked out that they couldn't get the car on the trailer because the, the nose was so low. So they just 
towed it back to back to Malvern, and then afterwards they worked out, oh, if we turn the car around, we can get it on the trailer because the back's higher than the front, and that's how the car was towed for years and years after that. You'll all the photos you see of it on a trailer, it's always backwards. Was there anything that you went into this project? Rock solid sure on that the research proved you, you wrong of what you thought. Well, I guess the big thing is the racing record. So number of starts, number of wins, podiums, poles, all that sort of thing. Which famously was always quoted, wasn't it, as, what, 101 wins from 151 races? Correct. So two out of three was kind of the yep. the, the commonly held view and what would you say? It, was, it almost had become fact by time. Really? Yeah, it was just the mythical figures, and and they were conveniently easy to remember. You know, one above one hundred and fifty, and one above a hundred. Um, so I was always a little bit dubious about it. Um, and the other thing is, there's lots of evidence that the official quote unquote, I'm doing the quotation marks in the air, uh, official figures never tallied with one another, even. So if you if you looked at you know, they'd put out a BP had put out a postcard or something and say, "Oh, it's done this many meetings and this had this many wins." Well, it could you could never get to 151 and 101 from there. So I always thought, well, that's a bit odd. Um, they they obviously kept some sort of record back at Malvern Road, um, but I knew from the outset that you know I'd be sitting down and going through all my records and getting every race chronicled, and at the end of the day. It was what it was, and it's not 151 and 101. It's not a million miles away, and it's still a pretty damn good record. Um, but, yeah, so the, the the tally is finally in there. When we talk the level of depth of research and detail, I mean, you look at the result sheets at the back here of every individual result and race that this car's done, but not just that. You've gone above and beyond and found the program cover from every event and meeting that the car did. I mean, this is a level to, to give our listeners an idea. It's not just thousands and thousands of words and hundreds of amazing photos. Yep. You've always had a level of depth. And if you're going to do something, you've got to do it properly. And I think I've got a bit of that wiring, a lot yep. of that wiring in me too. Yep. If you're going to do it, do it well. And, and it'll make people go, wow, that's something really impressive that I couldn't do. Yeah, uh, you know, or maybe they're not crazy enough to want to do, but <laughs> uh, you know, the level of detail there is. I mean, just to go and find all those programs, get all the covers, that in itself as a mission compared to doing the rest of the books, a big project. So no wonder um, this was a five year thing. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And and I guess I had the time to do it, and I had the passion, and and I'm enough of a train spotter to want to do it. And me as a punter would want it. You know, I'd, I would pour over them and, and look at them all. I, I never kept a log of my time. Probably a good thing. Very important. Um, but I would have spent weeks chasing down all those programs. What was the hardest one to find? Was there one that eluded you till the very end? Um, there was a New Zealand one and a Tasmania one that, right. that I had a bit of trouble getting. But one of the photographers down in Tassie thankfully had one. And the New Zealand one, I can't remember where I got it from. But, of course, having spent weeks and weeks chasing these things down, I've found a guy in Sydney who had all these programs <laughs> already scanned and <laughs> it might have saved me a lot of time. But but that's where the passion comes in. 
um, is where you, you know, I, I just had the blinkers on. I was going to do the best possible book I could, regardless of time, regardless of what anyone told me. Oh, you can't do a book on one car. It's, you know, people get bored. Um, I, I just thought, no, I'm going to do it. Every lap in under a minute. Every move made to matter. Every decision impacting the outcome of the race. Supercars in Perth. Every second matters. Bosch Power Tools Perth Super Sprint. May 17 to 19. Book now at Ticketek. Supercars. Unforgettable. The biggest challenge was actually, I think, not making it samey. I was worried that because it's, you know, 432 pages on one car, it would be too repetitive with the photos. But I think I've successfully got enough variety that it, it doesn't look like that. No, no. Between it's very easy to have a book packed with on-track racing shots of single cars, mm. yes, on different angles, different tracks, different places, but the mixture here, it's, it's people shots, which, you know, yes, it's about a car, but the car's nothing without the people that, you yeah. know, and clearly Alan is the main person in the car's life. It's yeah. the documentation that you've got the scans of. It's the behind-the-scenes crew members and mm. it's the um, – it's all those little other bits that, you know, aren't the obvious things to do, aren't the obvious things to find. Yep. There are a lot of those images that have been seen a million times. You've got to have those because they're they're part of it, but it's – it's some behind the scenes stuff at the workshop. At you mm. know, I'm looking at some shots here in the book as I flick. The shots of Alan out at Sandown before the first meeting mm. with its unveil, and and it's the little stories too, where the, there's an ampole sticker on there, and that's the one that he, he he peeled it off because it got stuck on there, didn't it, by the the rep at the time. Yeah, they were trying to do a deal with ampole, and and Alan said, oh, "I never got a cent from them." I don't know if that's true. Alan was inclined to make big comments like that but there yeah i got a photo out of his files and there's the photo of it with the ampole sticker on the on the side except somebody had got a texter and scratched on the photo on the photo and i i know for sure it's it's alan it's got to be alan (laughs) he he just would get rid of that (laughs) i'll sort this but i'm glad you mentioned the people because that's that's the other thing with the book is it's the story of the people you know it's not just a book about one car it's a book about probably at least 25 people that I've interviewed and all the old mechanics that I've man- managed to track down. And that was a delight that I was able to find all these guys and, you know, they're still alive and they've still got their memories and stuff like that. There's only one or two that have, that have gone. So I think that's important that it, that it's their story as well. So it has lots of anecdotes in there and lots of information and the photos prompt a lot of stories as well. Um, you know, I'm pretty happy with that as well. The level of of the captioning, you know, it's not just here's a car at Sandown. You know, there's there's often it adds info. There's often a little story behind it. Yeah, yeah. yeah. No, when you spoke to Alan, 2014, in that period yeah. when you, you got a lot of this this chat through, and you've clearly spoken mm-hmm. to him in previous years about this car and that era of racing, and he and he has been on the record many a time about and got emotional about what that car did for him and what mm. um, was done for him to have that car as well. Yep. Tell me a bit about your your feelings of all of that and, and talking to him at the time and, and what it clearly meant because I think that comes through in the book as well. 
Yeah, well, you know, 45 years after it all happened and he was telling the story, which he would have told plenty of times before about how he got it, how he went and had a meeting with Jack Passano, who was the head of motorsport in America, and sat down with him and said, excuse me, Mr. Passano, I'd like a car, could you find one somewhere, thinking he'd get an old car. Um, and Passano said, I'll leave it with me. Where are you staying? I'll be in touch. And he went and stayed, you know, four days. And I even found a photo of the motel that he stayed in, <laughs> just, you know, being a, being a completist that I am. Um, and he was, you know, when he, when he was telling me the story for, I don't know, the umpteenth time, he still teared up when he talked about how he got this new car and there was no money, it was a gift from Ford. It, it's quite an extraordinary story. You just can't imagine it happening in you know, a brand new works car, never been raced, and they just hand it over. Um, and it didn't make sense to me either that, like, how did this happen? There must have been something going on corporately. The four days that Alan sat in that motel room. Literally waiting for the phone to ring. Sitting by the phone, afraid to step out of the room to get a chocolate bar. Um, he just sat there for four days waiting for the phone to ring. And I'm thinking, some, something's going on there, so I... I've managed to put all the pieces together and find little little letters from the guy from Goodyear, uh, a, a memo from someone at Ford, and yes, there was stuff going on, and they were planning to launch special vehicles in Australia and get into the you know the hot V8 car market that we love so much today, and and how that all started. And yes, Moffat was going to be part of it, even though Moffat didn't know at the time. They're talking about oh, this guy's wanting to come to Australia. He's an experienced car craft test and development driver. You need someone. You know, all the pieces kind of fall, fall together. He was the right guy in the right place at the right time. That's but he'd worked so hard to, get, to get into that position. He'd done all the hard yards. He'd raced the Cortina. He'd done the deals and r- raced for Ford and got start money and then got it works drive and then – Got the job at Carcraft, and and you know he 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 was a great relationship builder, um, and he and he stayed loyal to all those people over many years, and, and lots of people who I didn't even know about at the time. A guy called John Mulrine, who is photographed at Carcraft building the car, um, he was one of Moffat's best friends, and and Moff was his best man at his wedding, and this is a guy I never knew existed. And he came to Australia for a couple of races, and there's photos of him, you know, hammering away at the at the uh, the flares to to clear the tyres. Um, and Barry Nelson was there as well, and Barry couldn't remember him being there. <laughs> you know, all this sort of stuff um, is pretty pretty remarkable. It's he's an amazing man, and it's an amazing car, and it's an amazing story. You've had access to. To, to Alan's documentation or a, a, a fairly decent amount of it because you can see that there's quite a bit of it in the book reproduced. Yep. Were there any hurdles? Were there any doors closed or doors that you had to really bring people around to, to open up to talk or were there any bits that you sort of left that you no. went, I can't quite get that to happen? Everyone was thrilled, to be honest, um, and Pauline from the outset, Gave me her blessing and Alan's wife, first wife. Uh, yeah, sorry, Alan's first wife, Pauline, who was there. Who's written the forward too? It's a beautiful forward for this book as well. Yep, she has, and she just said, "Go for it." You know, I trust you. I've always trusted you. 
Mm. That's cool. Gets me emotional thinking about it. <clears throat> so, yeah, you know, everyone was like that. Oh, you know, no one. No yeah, one every, clammed up. Everyone no one clammed had- up. They were, yes, when do you want to meet? Yep, talk as much as you like. I'll give you whatever I've got. Um, and, yeah, through, through those contacts, I've been able to unearth the original logbook that no one knew existed anymore. And for those who've bought the Platinum Edition, which is sold out, very exclusive edition, yep. there's a reproduction of the original CAMS logbook. Yep. I mean, I've, I've got one actually in front of me here. Um, 1969 Ford Mustang from the 2nd of May, 1969. It's beautifully reproduced here. It's in the limited edition Platinum book, which yep. is a – it's got a different cover. It's got some other elements. It's signed by yourself. It's individually numbered. They're all gone, by the way. They are all gone. There's no Sold more available. Out. All, 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 all gone. on pre-order. But here it is, logbook valid to the 31st of the 5th, 69 only. <laughs> There's a few other entries in there after that, but there's Sandown, that very first famous – meeting that yep. it attended that was a southern 60 in correct may 69 yep. there it is fourth of may all written down there with sand down okay signature of the scrutiny i mean it's reproduced in color too it's not a black and white yep copy i mean uh, it's, it's pretty amazing much, amazing it's pretty much as it as it is unbelievable yes yeah absolutely and uh, i even got access to one of his original helmets which is photographed and and in the book which I thought was a nice, a nice little touch. You don't as well. have to wear it while you're reading it. It's not part of. Uh, it's not part of the deal. No, I didn't. I didn't dare to put it on. <laughs> With a project like this, now that it's finished, now that it's done, the book is released. You can buy copies of the. Um, well, we're calling it the standard edition, but it's mm. there's nothing standard about the standard edition. It's just to distinguish it from the platinum edition. Would you say, having done this project, that the journey's the reward? No, and I know better than anyone, there's a great feeling when you finished a book and there it is in the flesh, arrived from the printer, open the box, in your hand, new book smell, it's a bit like a new car smell. <laughs> How good's that? It's a real thing. All that work and effort from our team has brought together and this is such a big project. Would you say that the journey is the reward rather than the there it is for the first time seeing it in the flesh? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I just loved every minute, mm. every minute of doing it. Love the writing, love the finding the photos, love getting involved in the layout and the captions, and it, it didn't feel like work. And I, that's why I was happy to spend so long doing it. I just thought, you know, this, this has to live up to my expectations. Um, and, and I love writing. I love researching. I love interviewing people. love getting to the bottom of stories. That, that's what I thrive on. And to be able to spend so long on one project and not have to scrimp and, and take shortcuts um, was an absolute delight. And I got to the end thinking I'd be an absolute mental wreck. And it was sort of like, oh, okay, what's what's next? You Which know, is a good way to be. Got to do something else now. Yeah, it's a great way to be. Yeah. And, and, you know, I had to be like that because against the advice of some people, I put number one on the cover for a reason. <laughs> As in it's part of a it's start of a series. Correct. Which makes you have to do number two of something now, doesn't it? I've got to do at least number two. <laughs> <laughs> I don't think it's going to take me five years. I'd, I'd like to think it'll be more like two, maybe three. But, yeah, I'm not getting any younger, so I have to do have to strike while the iron's hot. That's fair play. That's very fair play. What um, In terms of this Moffat Mustang, it is a famous – it's going to be a famous car in Australian motorsport history 
well after you and I are gone. It, it holds this amazing special place. And the thing that looking through this book reminded me, the shelf life of this car. I mean, you look at top-level motorsport, pretty rare for an individual car or chassis, depending on whether it's an open wheeler or whatever it might be. There's always rule changes. There's always the next model or a change in era or whatever it might be. For a car to have a competition life at the top level that this car had, that's what helps make the book such a big book because it's got such a long timeline here, the likes of which we're probably never going to see again at this sort of level. Nearly six years. It's a long time. It's a lot of racing. For a car. Yeah. Um, And the other thing I found with Moffat is all his projects are so interesting. He, he puts a lot into the concept of them. He goes the extra yard with everything. He's always chasing more performance, which sounds stupid. I think, you know, everybody in motor racing is going looking for more performance. But in those days, you know, it was you could go to extraordinary lengths um, with everything and you could get away with stuff, you know, like they could do dodgy things and get away with them. Did they get and away with anything with the Mustang? Oh, yeah, absolutely. It's the era of getting away with things. Yeah. I, I mean, you know, Barry Nelson said to me, oh, yeah, we never did anything dodgy, you know. So I kind of listed a few things and he kind of, oh, well, yeah, okay. <laughs> <laughs> Fair enough. And, and he was only there for two of the six years. Um, so, yeah, I've, I've uncovered a lot of things that they did. Um, I mean, it started with when the car was built, you know, Carcroft built some incredible uh, things into it. Everyone talks about the the low stance of the car, and and that's one of the things we loved about it. Is this amazing fastback car with, and the nose was like so close to the ground. And I got to the bottom of the story of the one and a half inch cut through the through the whole front of the car, um, and I got that from Lee Dykstra, who was the engineer who basically designed the car, who is now married to Pauline Moffat. Um, and he he gave me the whole nine yards on on how they did it and uh, why it's slower than the other cars in America, which was the other mystery. Why didn't the cars in America look the same as Moffat's? Well, there's That's a very why. good reason for it. Yeah, and it's all in the book. Um, they did things with 351 engines. Um, you know, we all know that he ran a 351 and Alan said, oh, yeah, we tried it once and, uh, you know, it was too heavy and we gave it away. Well, no, they didn't. They raced nine or ten times, I think, with 351s and they used aluminium blocks. They found some aluminium blocks in America. Alan found them on one of his many trips to Detroit. This is before the days of uh, online and doing oh, yeah. your homework and research. This is yep. you've got to go all the way there to do this stuff yep. back in the, those yep. days. And, you know, they used to have a warehouse of racks and racks of engines and equipment and all sorts of parts. And it was, yeah, what are these? Oh, they're aluminium blocks that we built for Can-Am. Oh, hmm. what are you doing with them? Oh, yeah, you can have them. Okay. <laughs> hey, Ray Kachi, build an engine. Here you go. Out of this aluminium block. <laughs> <laughs> um, and they had awful trouble. But it, it, it solved the weight problem of, because the, the iron block is a lot heavier and it, and it was too heavy over the nose of the car and it completely upset the balance. But the aluminium block made it about the same weight. And people say, oh, well, you know, he's cheating. Well, everyone was cheating back in those days. Bob Jane won two championships with the Camaro with um, a steel case gearbox. The car was homologated with an aluminium case gearbox. 
and they had these steel ones made up to look like aluminium and painted to look like aluminium. <laughs> so it's a whole other podcast series, isn't it? The stuff uh, they used yes. to do is probably a correct. an app title, correct? I and all the, all the suspension changes that they made to you know make it work properly because a road car suspension doesn't work as well on a race car as a racing car suspension. Um, and they did incredible things. You know, Lee Dykstra explained how they'd, you know, they'd conceal bolt holes and bolts and locations to get the geometry working better, all that sort of thing. It's just fascinating stuff. And Norm Beachy did it as well. When I was talking to Lou Malia, who he went, worked for Norm, who, didn't he? Who built the famous yellow Monaro that won the championship, the first non, or the first Australian car to ever win the championship, and then went and worked for Moffat. Um, so I was talking to him, and and yeah, he was telling me how they they got the wheels and the offset was wrong, um, so they had to change the suspension and make it look standard, <laughs> <laughs> and it worked out better because the geometry was better. All these sort of things went on. Do you know how to find the right oil for your car? Now you can find out quickly and easily online thanks to Castrol's Rego to Oil tool. Simply type in your Rego, select your state. And within seconds, you'll know the best Castrol products to unlock the edge of performance in your car. So what's your car best suited to? Just search Rego, the number two, and oil and find out. What's your, what's your first memory of that car? Do you have a vivid memory of the first race you saw it at? Oh, it'd be a good story if I did, wouldn't it? <laughs> I should. I don't really. I remember going there. I used to stay at a mate's place who lived near Sandown, and I lived, you know, probably five miles away. Uh, and we'd walk down and stand up at uh, on the fence at uh, what was then oh, Lukey Heights, I think it was called. Uh, became Marlborough Country, then it became Repco, I think. So over the top, going into mm, the into Rothman's the, Rise, into the yeah, Rothman's Rise, yeah. yeah, all of that. Yeah, um, yeah, I remember. Remember watching it, but no, I don't remember the first time specifically. You know, I was, I was you. very young. It got, it got you in. It yeah, got I you was wide-eyed about everything, and I and I loved everything. It's not like I was Ford or Holden or touring cars. Or I loved everything. I loved the Formula Two. I loved the Humpies. Loved the Formula Three. The sports sedans. The you name it. Loved it all. And uh, but yeah, that car. That car was just something else. And and Norm's Monaro. They were the the two standout cars for me. One of the things that um, struck me too, because of this car's American birth and roots and and connection, clearly there's going to be a lot of interest in this book, not just in Australia and New Zealand where this car did race with, with Alan for a time, but I think there's a lot of Mustang fans in the US and overseas who are going to really – might take them a little bit of time to maybe find out about this book, mm. but once they – word spreads pretty quickly of, of things like this, but – how were you with being able to access people and information and elements from the US for, for putting this together? Uh, probably harder than in Australia, of course, because I didn't know anybody. But, um, yeah, there are a couple of good sources. Um, there's, a, there's a historic mob in Watkins Glen in New York. Um, they had quite a good collection. Um, and an, another mob who I don't even know where they are where they were located, managed to get a few photos from them. Um, and Alan had a lot of stuff as well. He had a lot of photos from, from that era. Uh, I didn't really need to talk to too many people. I, like, I didn't want to make the American 
racing section any bigger than it was. I already had enough from Alan and, of course, um, Barry Nelson and Peter Thorne uh, were his crew over there. And they're, they're both still living in Victoria and easy to access. So, no, I had, had no trouble in that regard. Where do you think this – where does this car stack up? I mean, to do a massive book about it, it's clearly massively important. Mm. And it's hard to make big calls on things. But I cannot think of a car that matches this for its success, longevity, importance to the career and life of a Hall of Famer, like a top-tier, level one yeah. guru, legend, icon, use whatever term you like. Yeah. I can't think – there's legendary, magnificent other cars that are Bathurst winners, championship-winning cars or driven by famous drivers – but I don't think they have all of the elements and the backstory that this car has. It's a phenomenal – I mean, this car is worthy of a spot in Hall of Fame as the car. Mm. Clearly, the guy is in lots of Hall of Fames for, for great reason. But this car should be in the Australian Motorsport Hall of Fame. Like, seriously. I would agree with every word of what you say, say and I would add it was as sexy as hell. <laughs> That's the other thing. It's like it is such a great-looking car, and it was the first car to carry non-automotive commercial sponsorship, the Coca-Cola sponsorship. You know, it's you can't underestimate that, mm. and it just worked. The red car, he wanted it red. The Coca-Cola is red. It's got that signage, and it was nice and subtle in those days, and the car just looked fantastic. And as I said, it looked like it came from outer space. Before that, you'd have... You know, Pete Gagan's Mustang sat high and had the wheels hanging off at all sorts of angles and it would lean and slide. This thing arrived and it looked like it was painted to the ground. It was, a yeah, just a sensational car. Yeah. And, and Alan just loved it to death. And that's why it exists now in, the, in, in its original form. It was never molested. And this comes through a lot in, in the book as well as he, he was – going to retire it before he had to cut it up and move the engine back through the firewall or anything like that. Um, so, yeah, just he parked it, dusted it, just kept it beautiful. And wasn't it for a time sent to the US with the view to selling it, but mm. it didn't sell. And it probably at the time it would have been at a price that if you'd snapped it up then mm. would have been a very good deal. Yeah. Well, was it three fifty or 350000 US at the time or something? It was a lot of money at the time, to be fair. But, yeah, the Americans didn't quite know what to make of it because, yeah, it was this unmolested, genuine, Trans Am spec car, but it never raced in America. Yeah, it looked a bit weird. Alan didn't really want to sell it, so I don't think he tried, tried too hard. hard. No. <laughs> <laughs> he was more than happy to sell it to David Bowden um, and have it brought back to Australia, and it couldn't have ended up in better hands. In, in hindsight, and David's, you know, you can't even say he restored it. It's not restored. It was just taken back to its classic form, and they just did a magnificent job. But most of the stuff in there is is as it last raced. What's your favourite livery of it? I mean, it subtly changed. What you different? Because there were different there was 50, eras. There seven was- or fifty-eight different. Well, there's different numbers, liveries. different sponsors. Yeah, sp- stickers on, stickers off. <sighs> I mean, at a time when I think we should point out to probably our younger listeners that these days in supercars and even in recent years, the teams and the drivers have a number for the year 
and every round is part of the championship. In the Moffat era, I mean, we famously hold him as number nine, the, the mm-hmm. Moffat Mustang. This car ran all sorts of numbers, different stickers, different sponsors, and it, and it was – it didn't win the Australian Touring Car Championship. That's the other point we should mention here. <laughs> this legendary, iconic car yep. won lots of races, yep. didn't win the championship. It wasn't a Bathurst 1000 eligible car because the rules were different mm. for the, the Bathurst race and the championship at the time. There was, you know, the no wing at the back at the start of it all. There was little mods and tweaks, the bigger engine, yep. the, the, the regular size it, all those iterations and all those possibilities, mm. what is the iconic look, spec, call it what you will, of the of the Moffat Mustang in your mind? Is it how it looks on the cover of this, this book? Probably not, actually. I, I think that is the classic look of the car. Mm. And the car never actually raced exactly as it sits at the moment. That That's kind of a composite of all the best elements. He never actually raced like that. Um, I actually like the round nines, the number nines that were round rather than square. That's my personal favourite. And I like the headlight covers. So it ran with silver and black headlight covers, and I, I like that look. Just a, a personal thing. Just a personal yeah. tape, touch and taste of it all. And then you go to the appendixes. There's blueprints of... All the parts, the fuel tank, the the hubs, the then you get all the results that we mentioned earlier on with the event by event and the level of breadth and depth. And I love at the very end, there's a little appendix of 711 Mulvern Road, which is the, the workshop that Alan worked out for so many years. It's not there now. It got knocked mm. down a few years ago and it's been replaced by an apartment you know, building. Yep. But um, the building's part of that story. The car, the Little man, tribute. those three things all click together. And there's some beautiful imagery here of the the Mustang sitting there in the workshop with some winner's laurel wreaths hanging off the wall and a Coca-Cola, um, you know, some filing cabinets, some Coca-Cola signage. The Coke machine's in the corner <laughs> as well because, you know, if you've got the Coke car, you need to feed your mechanics Coke to, to work on it. The, so. me- the mechanic said they lived on Coke and hamburgers. <laughs> that was it. And I guess the other thing too that – we talk about race teams these days, professional, full-time, mm. tens of people. You know, I don't know how many people Triple Eight have got right now, but across their supercars, their GT programs, there there must be 40, 50-odd people there. Yep. What was the biggest Allen's crew was at any stage? With the A Mustang? Couple, handful? Um, I'd say through a whole six years, there would have been one or two mechanics, full-time mechanics. At any one stage? At any time, yep. yep. Never more than two. And they'd get gophers in. So Alan had a lot of gophers. So people who work for nothing and just- Come along, happy to help. Happy to help. Yeah. Yep. And um, some quite famous ones. And a couple of them went on to become chief mechanics. Yeah. Um, So, yeah. It's a different time completely. Mm. Uh, So I guess the next question is, as we look at this amazing- publication, which is available now from the V8 Sleuth Superstore and a, a bunch of other stockists online. The Boss, The Inside Story of Alan Moffat and His Trans Am Mustang by David Hassel. It's book one of legendary Australian race cars on the cover. You know what I'm going to ask you You're not going to ask me what the next one is, are you? Have you started on book two or do you know what book two is going to be? I've kind of- <laughs> And you don't have to reveal anything that you don't no, want to reveal. No. I've got a few in the rack. To be honest, 
Um, I would think your listeners would probably be sitting back and thinking, well, you know, Peter Brock would be an obvious one, wouldn't he? But which car do you pick? Fair, fair call. There's quite a few to choose from. There is. Mm. There's still a few Moffat ones that are worth a book as well. And Dick Johnson. Um, and people say, oh, you should do Bob Jane's Camaro. And you should do Norm Beachy's Monaro. All these things are possible. Mm. There's a few to choose from there. There are. You have left us hanging. But, I like it. Um, I like it. Yeah, I, I think, yeah, I think Peter Brock would have to be the next one. I shouldn't really say that off the top of my head, should I? But I, I am working towards it. We started doing it. interviews already. Sounds good. Well, when you can, this is the place to tell people. We won't tell anyone. Like, just, just among us. We'll just share it amongst your small number of listeners. I think there's a few more than a small number, just quietly. But <laughs> we'll keep it among friends. We'll keep it among friends. David, it's a beautiful book, The Boss, The Inside Story of Alan Moffat and his Trans Am Mustang. It is, it's a work of art, like the Mustang itself. Thank you. Um, just a, a word of warning to our listeners. If you have a copy of this book, set aside a lot of time to read it and enjoy it and pour over the details, the photos. But I would recommend don't try to read it in bed because if you do happen to doze off in the early hours of the morning and you lose a grip on this book at mm-hmm. 3.3 kilos, that might just rearrange your nose. It's a big, hefty, beautiful book. Um Thanks for sitting down with me. Really appreciate sharing some of the insights and how it's all come to be. I know the people who follow our podcast, they love this stuff like you wouldn't yep. believe. And uh, it's a ripper, mate. You should be so unbelievably proud. It's a, it's a cracker. I am very proud and I'm happy to talk about it. And, yes, I hope people who buy it do actually read it. It is a coffee table style of book and it's got lots of lovely photos that you know people will love pouring over. But it's a really good story as well. So I, I hope they get into it and, and – get into the whatever 100,000-plus words uh, and enjoy it. There is – I'd hate to know how many words. Probably best that you never stop and actually add up how many are in there, but don't, there are thousands and thousands. It'll yep. keep you entertained for a, a long time. The Platinum Edition is sold out of the Boss book, but the Standard Edition book for $189.95 uh, plus postage is available now. Superstore.vhsleuth.com. .au, tell all your friends, whether they're in Australia, New Zealand or overseas, uh, it's posted around the world. It is a must-have book and it's a limited edition too. There's not thousands and thousands and thousands of copies of this book. It's a limited print run and once they're gone, they're gone. So make sure you don't miss out. The Boss, the inside story of Alan Moffat and his Trans Am Mustang. David Hassel, thanks for sitting down. Good to catch up. Thanks for having me. Every lap in under a minute means every second matters. Bosch Power Tools Perth Super Sprint, May 17 to 19. Book now at Tick Attack. Supercars, unforgettable. Do you know how to find the right oil for your car? Now you can find out quickly and easily online, thanks to Castrol's Rego to Oil tool. Simply type in your Rego, select your state, and within seconds you'll know the best Castrol products to unlock the edge of performance in your car. So what's your car best suited to? Just search Rego, the number two, and oil and find out.